This is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can. Always give love the upper hand. Paint a walk, learn to dance. Call your mom, buy a boat. Drink a beer, sing a song. Make a friend, can't we all get along? Alright, Brendan, so it's November 6th, Friday evening. We're three days post-D-Day, post the 2020 election. Um, what are we talking about this week? Yeah, so originally we had discussed potentially doing an episode Tuesday night, the night of the election, and we decided, well, we're not going to know anything on Tuesday. Let's let's wait till after. We said, well, let's, you know, let's do it Wednesday, and then... Wednesday came along and like, well, we don't really know anything more than we knew on Tuesday. Let's do it Thursday. Thursday came along, like, we still don't know anything more than we knew on Wednesday. So here it's Friday. We still don't know who our president is, uh, but we have a lot of information. And at some point, we just have to get some takes out there. So obviously, this is going to be just a full election episode. I had had some ideas of let's do this segment and this segment and this segment. And you were like, nah, let's just talk and it's going to be a hot take election episode. All of our kind of shoot from the hip. What are our thoughts on on everything that's transpired on, on Tuesday and this week and looking forward? So there is no plan for this. We're just going to sit and react to everything that's happened since Tuesday. So you can kick it off wherever you'd like to. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I felt like a hot take session uh, was was maybe the way to go here, and you know we can do a fact checking episode <laughs> down the road. Or yeah, we're not we're not going to do that, but like <laughs> that would probably be a good <laughs> idea. Theory, we could talk about. Doing you know, what we fact. need is like now that we actually have a few people listening, is like people out there like fact check for us. Oh yeah, like, like reader emails. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, maybe not though, because <laughs> we probably getting you know. Well, anyways. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you know. What we first talked about was was what are what are our, like immediate takeaways and um, I think something that struck both of us something we were both hoping for sort of um, is the increase in the voter turnout. Um, so I'll read a few numbers here. Um, this year's election turnout is projected to have sixty six percent or north of sixty six percent of the eligible voter population. Um, turn out, which is going to be the highest since on 1900. Record. Highest, yeah, highest since 1908, um, but the highest uh, in the history of the U.S. elections, or since we've like kept that stat or something. Um, that compares. That's about seven percent higher than what we saw in 2016. Obviously, just from a raw voter count, we're well, well surpassing anything that we've ever seen before. Um, right now. Biden has somewhere around 74 million votes um, and Trump has about 70 million votes. Um, both of those are for 15 million votes more than the major parties got um, in 2016. So uh, massive turnout. First, uh, first takes on that. By far the biggest positive of, of the evening. You know, we've talked repeatedly on this podcast. You know, democracy is better when people are engaged and people were engaged, you know, on, on both sides, people were fired up for their candidates up and down the ballot for, for the issues that were in front of them for ballot measures. Uh, as, as you mentioned, you know, 
Biden set the record for most votes in a presidential candidate in history. He, he blew past Obama's 2008 numbers. And number two on that list, Donald Trump this election, right? So like those two numbers are the most votes that any candidate has gotten in you know pre- American presidential history. And obviously the size of the country has gotten bigger, but even your, your stat of the percentage of eligible voters, you know, two thirds of eligible voters, the highest in a hundred years, maybe the highest you know, like you said on record, it's it's awesome. It's it's like in my like I said, by far the biggest positive that so many people went out in, particularly because voting was so challenging this year in so many ways. Uh, whether it was you know COVID-related illnesses or certain polling places being shut down due to shortage of workers, incredibly long lines in places, there are you know always. Uh, potential issues for minority voters or immigrant voters that they, like additional obstacles that they have to overcome. Uh, it's, it's, it's a testament to American, the American people. And it's something that, you know, if president Trump is eventually to lose something that I would love to talk about more down the road of kind of the galvanizing effect he's had in American politics for all like the terrible, you know, things that he potentially has done. One of the great things that, you know, I can't really give him credit for, but also, it is attributable to him is this surge in interest in um, in politics in general. And it's, I never really understood people that said like, well, I'm not political. Uh, but I think it's almost impossible to say that and certainly impossible to say that responsibly now. Like it's everyone, it seems like they're political. And to me, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've definitely talked about this before. Um, I mean, we sort of had different reactions to the, like the, the women's march after he got, um, elected in t- 2016 but you know one of the things that I that I said about that is that, you know what else gets over a hundred thousand people on the Boston Common um, you know for a political rally like you just would never see that before um, and it's certainly uh, you know I don't know if you necessarily call it a good thing but it is something and there are um, I think if you have to take some silver linings away from it, it is that a lot more people are paying attention. Um, I think at the end of the day, or not at the end of the day, in many respects, it is the start. Um, we've like for for probably every election since since I can remember, um, you know, MTV was running like get out the vote, everybody vote, you vote gotta or vote. die, vote or die. Yeah. Um, but that seemed to be it. All you had to do was vote and you were meeting that criteria. Now, you know, the the hope is the next time around, people are going to say, all right, I need to be an informed voter. Like, how do I learn about the candidates and their positions and what I actually want and what I hope that they do? And, you know, what are, you know, the different things that I'm going to uh, judge them on, the different criteria and things like that, right? So I don't think um, we're, we're definitely not, uh, where we want to be, but it's certainly such a positive development. It's progress, and this is another one of those things I'm bringing up is social, the influence of social media on um, politics and the awareness of politics. And again, there's huge downsides to politics on social media. But at the same time, it's because social media is so diffused throughout our lives, politics is diffused throughout our lives. And whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or what, Twitter, like all of those platforms, Politics is everywhere, and so you can't help but be inundated with it. And again, the kind of the fake news that and disinformation that exists on some of those platforms is, is dangerous, no doubt. But there's also like a, a lot of really good information that you see for all of these organizations to get their word and message out there. And certainly, I, I think even over the summer, like the Black Lives Matter movement, you, you just saw it 
in at least in my feed, like all over, you know, Instagram and, and Facebook. And it's like, these are good things for organizations to be able to promote their values. And I, to build off your point where, of course, we're not where we want to be yet, but I just think in having worked with young people for so long, they're so much more politically aware than I was as a middle schooler, as a high schooler. Like, I guess I kind of thought that I was politically aware, but I wasn't, you know, like it was naive of me to think that, but some of these kids, and again, some of that social media, some of that is just like the constant news cycle that we're in and everyone has a phone and everyone's, you know, online in the ways that we weren't growing up. And there's downsides to that too, but these kids are just really aware. And even texting with some of my former students who are in high school or college, and some of them text me, said, I voted for the first time. And I was like, that's so cool, you know? But they're, they're not just voters, but they're informed voters. And they've been informed because they've been paying attention for six, seven years at this point in ways that I definitely wasn't at 18. So I think that gives me a lot of hope for your point of not just voting, but being informed. Like we have all of these kids coming up that are passionate intelligent informed voters and that that just bodes well going forward yeah yeah definitely um well i guess before i move on what are you know do you have any other specific things that you were looking at that you know felt really positive to you about the election yes (laughs) i i I actually have a lot and i have have them written down and so i'm going to run through these and uh if you have any takes on them you can uh chime in obviously otherwise i'll just run through them in, in terms of things that i thought were positive a lot of them are at lower levels um so maybe they were on like your list of things to talk about too so um we have the first two openly gay black congressmen um both of them from new york uh, richie torres and mondaire jones uh, richie torres is actually um an afro latino so he's uh you know, he's checking a lot of checking boxes <laughs> and i don't mean to trivialize him yeah. like that but it's a big deal and you know uh, that that's great for those two um, this woman named Sarah McBride uh, was the first transgender state senator from Delaware. Mm-hmm. And they're now, uh, the number of transgender legislatures, uh, legislators was doubled in the country. So I think we have eight or nine now. Uh, and it's one of those things where it's still so early in that kind of political process where every one of these is kind of historic and like and glass shattering in that sense. Um, and then some ballot measures that I thought were, were really cool. Uh, Arkansas passed uh, term limits for their state legislatures so that you can you can only serve 12 years, um, which I was like, mm, that's an interesting thought. Uh, Oregon uh, decriminalized hard drugs. So that doesn't mean that, you know, heroin and cocaine are like legal in Oregon, as I'm sure you know. But uh, now if you get caught with small amounts on it, like for personal use, you're either paying a fine or you could ask for treatment. Just like, in my opinion, that seems that seems great. Uh, Rhode Island changed the name of their state. You hear about that? I did not. <laughs> Do you know what? I didn't know this either. I guess like maybe I kind of knew it. Do you know what the full name of Rhode Island was? No. I knew it was like a prison state for like Massachusetts or something at <laughs> well, one point. I don't know. It was That's when Roger Williams, we kicked yeah, him out and yeah, he had yeah. to go start the colony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. He, we exiled people. We exiled them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't the right religion. Um, Massachusetts come along with well. <laughs> uh, So Rhode Island until Tuesday was Rhode Island and the Providence Plantations. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, which, again, it's kind of one of those things, like, it doesn't matter to me, and I'm sure it didn't matter to 99% of people from Rhode Island, but if it bothers somebody, whatever. Now, So they dropped the name, now, now it's strictly Rhode Island. Uh, Mississippi has a new state, state flag. flag yeah. So Mississippi, um, for people that don't know, had a state flag which had the Confederate flag in the upper left-hand corner um, for the, since 1894. And now they have a new state flag. It's like a magnolia flower in it. Um, 
You know, I thought was interesting, though, I was looking into that a little bit. There was a referendum on the Confederate flag in 2001, which was defeated 64% of the vote. So I just always think it's really cool on stuff like this. And we definitely start with, like, gay marriage or or legalization of marijuana, where marijuana was legalized in five more states. Uh, Where attitudes change quickly sometimes. You know, like, in in the last 20 years, all of a sudden, you went from two-thirds of people saying, keep the Confederate state flag, and now... It's we have this new state flag twenty years later, so I think that's cool. Um, Do you know what the percentage was in Mississippi for that? No, I should have. But. I think it was close to sixty percent, which is you know just something that I would note because Mississippi is you know <laughs> the reddest of the red yeah. kind of thing, um, and it's something. Yeah, we don't, don't have to touch on that now, but I have some some thoughts on that. Cool. Uh, a few more things. These are less like positives and more just ballot legisl- ballot measures that I thought were interesting. Uh, Florida, fifteen dollar minimum wage. So that's not going to you know be put in place tomorrow, but it, over the course of a few years they'll build up to it. It's the fourth state to do it. Guess the first three. I bet you can guess the first three. Massachusetts, One, New York, two. California. Boom! Out of boy. So, yeah. Go. Yeah. No. I mean, so. Uh, if you if you have any other good ones, because I think this is really what I wanted to to talk. No, about. go ahead. That's good. Yeah, so I think as an angsty Democrat watching the uh, election election results, like I was not, I there were a few positives for me. Like the entire night was just kind of miserable, like watching those numbers come in, especially yeah, because <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Tuesday night especially, like yeah. all of a sudden, it, you know, some of these states start blue, and you just see the numbers dwindling. And you got John King up there, and he keeps telling me, well, of course it started blue because we got the mail-ins first. But, you know, come to find out a day later, like, actually the mail-ins get kind of get counted last after the people start actually voting. But anyways, what, you know... So kinda, it wasn't, you weren't feeling great on Tuesday. No, I was not, <laughs> yeah. I was not feeling good on Tuesday. So I was having trouble, like, thinking about, you know, what what is uh what what positive takeaways Look at all I can, the positives I, I just off. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I think one of the things that... that is going to be my my major takeaway for this election, right? So, you know, people are going to point to um, the country is essentially split 50-50, couldn't be more, you know, polarized or, uh, you, you know, whatever words you kind of want to use for people on opposite ends of the spectrum. But we were just talking about valid questions like uh, taking the Confederate flag off the state uh, flag of Mississippi, like adding a $15 minimum wage um, in Florida, which are you know essentially progressive things to do, uh, but what happened in California, right? The most liberal um, of the states, where uh, where yes. Biden won two to one against Trump, like you know a veritable landslide. Uh, California in general has uh, the Democrats have a supermajority in the legislature, but they are they love their props in California, they do. right? Yeah, so they yeah. have twenty. 22 or 25 no or something. Yeah, it's some yeah. absurd number. We couldn't even handle two. No, right. We but, felt uninformed on yeah, two. Un, yeah, on two. Yeah. But they had, <laughs> yeah, they had 20, 20 plus. But I, I have a couple here that I think. All right, were, I only have one on my list. So I'm curious very what else interesting. You have. So, um, and some of these may go back to like who's informed and who's not. But they voted no on affirmative action right. in California. So they really voted no to repeal a ban on affirmative action, which if you're trying to do the mental gymnastics on the triple negative yeah. there, you may have just gotten confused and voted for the wrong understandable. thing. Understandable. Uh, which would have been Do you want to talk about that or do you want to go to the other ones? Well, I, I want to go, I want to run through the list, but okay. I'm, I, want, I would love to go back to any of these. Right. They voted no on rent control, 
which is a massive sort of progressive uh, policy that, I mean, I think anybody who look, tries to look at rent control objectively would be able to say that it was employed in New York and employed in California to uh, two of the most expensive rental markets in the country. So I think we are not going to say that rent control really uh, met any of its objectives, but that's um, probably the, the more center, not left part of me talking. Um, and then the biggest one, right? Um, they voted yes to treat Uber and Lyft uh, employees like contractors, meaning, so the biggest implication, meaning that they don't get um, health care. They actually do get a, a suite of some other benefits as part of that prop. Um, but the main thing is that they don't get health insurance through their employer because they're not considered full-time employees, right? These are some of the types of leg legislation that we would expect, you know, the the diehard blue, the radical left wing of the party that Donald Trump was talking about would have approved that, um, you know, you know, without batting an eye, like that would be um, the end of that. And most of these failed pretty, pretty hard. Um, and so I think it really, I, I think in a weird way, if, if people are starting to try and think critically about what the different states are saying to um, their legislatures and their parties is that we may not be actually as far apart as people think that we are. Um, and it I think it goes back to speaking to a lot of what we've talked about just about how we run our primary system for candidates and who people hold their noses and vote for um, because they feel like, you know, the people who would make the decisions that they would most make are just not on the on the tickets. Um, but I know that which one were you looking to go? Well, I actually want to touch on that philosophical point first, and we don't have to spend too much time on this, but I love that point because as you were speaking, I was thinking the same thing of, you know, at, at this national level, the presidential level, we have, like you said, as polarized as can be 70 million people on one side, 74 million people on the other. And I mean, you can't get much different than Trump and Biden, right? It seems like a very kind of binary choice, black or white there. And unfortunately, it probably is a black or white choice. You know what I'm saying? There isn't, there's like not as many shades of gray there. Uh, but what happens is I think people get pushed into those corners. One, because you're so scared, whether it's the rhetoric or the advertising or whatever, that what this other side is going to do in terms of ruining your jobs, or your life or America, and <laughs> just whatever. Uh, but also that, you know, you feel that you have to kind of defend your side a lot. And I, I can speak to that from a more conservative perspective is that, you know, one you know, liberals are making you feel a certain way about things that you believe, you just double down on those beliefs, right? And you're saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, vote for this guy and I'm going to be as red as I can. And I'm going to be out there with my flag and, and saying, no, I'm actually really proud of what I believe. And it, and it creates this real, this, this tension at a national level, which we see with those, uh, with, you know, the presidential election. But when you dig down into the ballot questions, you know, Florida having the same minimum wage as New York, Massachusetts, and California and Cal like, California being like, no, they're one of eight states that's anti-affirmative action. And I, I think it does speak to like, you know, that famous um, saying like all politics is local. Tip O'Neill said that. I'm going, I'm going with that. Again, we can, someone yeah. can fact check that. Uh, which doesn't seem to be true anymore because it seems like that, that Trump and the national politics kind of filter down through everything, right? And it, and it seems like you just can't escape the national level. And and that might be true for candidates with an R or a D next to their name. But if we're really just looking at specific policies, yeah, like there, I think there are things that, 
seem really surprising to us, but it's like, all right, there's some agreement here. The $15 minimum wage isn't necessarily this crazy liberal belief. And again, that might not work in all states because the, the you know, the standard of living, cost, cost of living yeah, is, yeah. is different in a lot of these states. But, you know, that's something that maybe a lot of states could agree on. And so it, it does, yeah, like you say, in a weird way, if we're looking for like bright spots and hope, there are some, if we really drill down into policy, and again, going back to people being more informed voters, if, if we can get, you know, candidates that are going to debate on ideas, like we might have something here in terms of, of political agreement. Yeah, and I think um, I think no better way to, to segue than from there into um, some of the not so great moments from from Tuesday and, and the last couple of days. So aside from some of the negatives kind of at the um, at the national scale, which uh, I definitely have some thoughts on, but I'd like to I'd like for you to start on that. I, the two things um, that did stand out to me that were sort of uh, negative outcomes on these ballot questions. I'm not sure if negative is the right word, but um, alarming at least. Uh, so the ballot question that we talked about in California that was sort of indicative of, of maybe um, maybe that state not trending as um, liberal as as you know one might expect based on on how they're sort of portrayed in national politics um, was that proposition 22 that essentially classified um, uber drivers as contractors instead of full-time employees um, limiting them from getting uh, employer-based health care um, in that, in that uh, sort of for that valid question, Uber spent Uber and Lyft, I think, combined spent over two hundred yeah, million dollars yep. um, to defeat that. Well, I guess in favor of the measure, um, but really kind of de- to defeat the idea of the of the initial legislation. Um, and of course, you know, the labor unions that were in favor of it, they mustered up like nineteen million. So to put those two numbers together. You know, it's possible that the Californians were not as progressive as we thought, or it's also possible that um, you know money talks a lot more than um, people are able to sort of get free access to ideas. Um, so there's certainly some things to be said there. I think to tie it back to to you know for those for those of our listeners at home to tie it back to some of those Massachusetts questions. Um, the right to repair uh, ballot question here in Massachusetts was the most expensive ballot question in Massachusetts's history, um, costing the, costing sort of the, the two camps close to $40 million. Um, I think the it was more even split here, uh, which is probably why you saw almost as many ads saying vote yes as vote no. Yeah, I'm no. a little surprised by that. I would have said <clears throat> that there were more vote no's, given not only the number of ads I saw, but also that I figured they were coming in from the dealerships. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. you would think that. I I think um I think some of their criticisms were that um, national chain auto body parts stores were also getting involved, <laughs> which was which yeah. is which which was true. Um, you know, in addition to independent contractors. Well, 
I think, yeah, maybe it was 25 million to 15 million. You get to 40 that way, but it was still a very, very expensive race. Um, that ballot measure did pass. So Massachusetts will have right, right to repair. Um, but (laughs) number two, the second one ranked choice, which is arguably far more important for, um, sort of the advancement of, uh, you know, broadening our political spectrum, getting candidates who are able to more debate on ideas and instead of um, sort of how well do they identify with an ideology, um, ranked choice voting failed. Um, anecdotally, I can tell you that a lot of people that I talked to were like, oh yeah, I just didn't get it, so I voted no. And, um, uh, you know, some of these people are near and dear to my heart. <laughs> Um, <laughs> my parents both voted no yeah, on it too. Yeah, so. right. I, I, had, yeah, yeah. I had one parent vote yeah. yes, and the other voted no. And um, and yeah, yeah, I was yelling at them. Too bad they had already voted, but they're like, "Why would I want to rank people?" I was like, you don't have to. <laughs> if you don't want to rank people, you don't have to rank them. All right, you just vote for one person. You you're you're preventing other people from ranking them. Yeah. Like, ah, I don't want to do that. Yeah. You know? I will say, I uh, not to hijack this, but I talked to one of those one of my former students I mentioned earlier and it was her first election she's 18 and she also voted against it and I was I was yelling at her too and she was like I just thought it was too complicated unless people were would come and vote and I was like you know what I disagree with that take I really don't think that would happen but if that's your rationale that you're trying to like you want the broadest you know spectrum of people to come and vote and no one to be intimidated by ranking candidates you know whatever i I, but i I was pretty upset about it but whatever we we thought that wasn't going to pass it wasn't surprised to me right uh it failed it got 45 percent of the vote only failed 45 to 55 so and i think that question will be back yeah i think that like maybe it maybe not in two years maybe not in four but i would say in the next decade that question's back and as the electorate continues to change and you know get a little more informed right and younger people can continue to vote i next i'm gonna call it right now next decade we have ranked choice voting yeah i mean i think the other thing that that i I haven't actually seen the numbers on like how many people voted either in the affirmative or against um but if you if you filled out the massachusetts ballot you know that the ranked choice question was on the second side of it and there was it was the only thing on the other side so uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a number of people just didn't even know that it was there. Because it's like, even in any of these ballot questions, there's a huge bunch of text. Right. And then some tiny line, nothing's bolded. Like you actually it took have me a to minute read to try it to, find to it. figure out where you yeah. vote yes or no. Yeah. Um, which I think this is a, certainly a deeper discussion. But how many people go into the ballot box not knowing what's on the dang ballot that they're about to fill out? They should um, listen to the podcast. They should probably yeah. listen to the podcast. Um, but anyways, that was probably, uh, the least of the negatives from, uh, from election night and the ensuing, um, few days. So, uh, I'll let you kick off, uh, your thoughts on, um, on, on what, uh, <laughs> I actually, I don't even know where to start. I'll let you kick it off. So for a few hours there, it looked like Trump was going to do it again. So I would say from, you know, East Coast time, like 10 to 12, it looked like, you know, 2016 reincarnated, right? Everything was was turning red and it was like, he's going to do it again. This is unbelievable. Uh, and then it became apparent that that was not going to happen. And while we didn't know that it was going to take, you know, for a week, a month at the time, you could start to get the sense that Biden was going to win. And that's only become more apparent over the last three days. So... Around 1.30, we were in a group text. At 1.30, I sent a message out to everyone that said, 
Biden's going to win. Trump's going to contest it. Worst case scenario. And it really is. So of all the things that we had talked about before the election, we had talked about this for weeks. And, you know, after that first debate, I had said to you that I was I was really nervous that I thought there was a non-zero chance that Trump would, would not you know, abide by the election results, that he would not concede and that he would try to hold on to power. I, I kind of got more positive and I was like, I was hopeful going into the night because I, quite honestly, I thought either Trump was going to win, in which case there was not going to be, he wasn't going to contest anything because he won, right? Just like in 2016. Well, he contested it even though he won. Right. Fair. Right. <laughs> Let's talk about that in a minute. But it, Or that Biden was going to win in such a blowout that I definitely thought was a possibility that there was going to be nothing to contest. Everyone's going to be like, dude, you lost, right? It's not even close. A Biden close win, as we had said going in, was the absolute worst case scenario for a number of reasons. But you knew, or at least I knew that once it started turning that way at 130, I was like, this is this is going to be a mess. It's not going to end well, as he had said in the first debate. And so then he gets uh, he gets up, you know, and gives his speech at 2.30 in the morning, which, again, like not surprising from Trump that he you could know he's just been raging for hours at this point. He's raging at the news media. He's raging at Fox for calling Arizona for, you know, for these liberal Democrats that are trying to steal the election from him. And the thing he believes the things he says and even worse, millions of people believe him. So it's, that's why, and we'll talk about this in more depth, but why he's so dangerous. But he gets up there and says that they're, they're stealing the election from us. And he's, he's dead serious when he says these things. He speaks to the camera and he points out, you know, we won Georgia. We won North Carolina. We won Pennsylvania. I hereby claim the state of Michigan. What a ridiculous thing to say. And it's like, it's, I was talking to someone else about this. Of all the things that he's done, and there are many things that have been have been terrible from the way he's treated migrant children to the racial um, you know fears that he's stoked to uh, you know the Ukraine quid pro quo or not quid pro quo or the, his, his taxes there are so many things you can put on the list of you know you know bad terrible evil things he's done in four years also a lot of good things that I would say he's done but different conversation this to me is number one he he's attacking the foundations of of our country and democracy at large. Like, it, it, this is not a new take, but our enemies around the world, enemies of democracy around the world, they couldn't have asked for anything better than that. Like, if you're, if you're, you know, Putin, if you are the leaders of Iran, uh, China, North Korea, and you have been preaching that democracy is not the answer for for years, for decades, you just point to this and say, Exhibit A. This is why our system is better. And he's he he's, you know delegitimizing the system of government that we've worked for for 240 years and have tried to spread and evangelize throughout the world and he is almost single-handedly undoing it it's 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 really disgraceful despicable and dangerous i, I have no defense for what he's done it, this is exhibit a of why he needs to go so uh obviously i'm not gonna fight you on on any of those things i think i thought that was incredibly uh, well said I guess my what I wanted to know, not know really. So, what what Trump is doing is not a surprise to me no. or, or to no. you. Um, like you know, in 2016, when he 
basically he won the race but it was almost like you know a screaming baby who was like expecting to lose telling everybody that the whole thing was rigged and it was an election i mean it was a fraud and he was being cheated and he's just like having a temper tantrum and someone's like got to shake him like dude buddy you, you won it's it's all right and then he's like i won, I won. all right all right but there's still didn't win by enough yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly it's exactly yeah, yeah. it's still a fraud um and so you know we we i mean yeah, obviously the the pundits or whatever had all been uh certainly on the left like prognosticating this sort of nightmare scenario that he's not gonna concede and um that's sort of like a necessary part of our democracy because it's really a way right the concession um although obviously you know there's no reason that he would need to concede yet there are still states yeah, to be called absolutely. which is fine but to come out and start saying fraud is a totally different thing but I think it's worth noting that, like, the concession is a big part of our democracy. It's the reason why um, when somebody loses, you don't have all of their supporters, which tend to be between, you know, 45 to 50 percent of the country or, you know, 45 to 49.9 percent of the country, let's say, from saying, all right, we need to take to the streets and, and deal with this. Um, luckily, so far, his biggest threats have been, you know, we're going to sue and we're going to go to the courts. Um, I you know, so far it doesn't look like they have any evidence to go to the courts with, which means that he's not, I don't think that there's going to be much traction in the courts. Um, so, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the story ends there, right? Because he has a legion of followers, um, you know, maybe not the 50% that voted for him, but maybe 50% of the 50% or whatever, even, even if it's 30% of the 50%, that's still a lot of people, many of whom, um, are tend to be you know people who you would expect to be heavily armed um, not to really I, I certainly don't want to put a doomsday scenario out there and give it more credence than it that it perhaps needs at this point but I think it's definitely worth saying um, I, I meandered a ton from where I wanted to get which is or what I wanted to say which is you know Trump's followers are loyal to him so what he says absolutely matters but I think it, it is also worth noting that he's not alone out there saying this. Um, he's got some of the biggest names in the Senate on the Republican side. He has plenty of um, support from uh, not Fox News, sort of the news branch of Fox News, but the talking heads branch of Fox News. Um, you know, some of the stuff that I was letting you know is just absolutely <laughs> driving me bananas yesterday, promoting essentially conspiracy theories and and this is the thing i think if if there was ever legitimate election fraud or voter fraud everybody would want to know about it but you can't start suggesting it with literally not a shred of evidence and and the worst i mean not, not the worst almost the comical part here is that you have uh at one point on tuesday or wednesday you had trump supporters in michigan saying stop counting the vote while in arizona you had them shouting count the vote and everywhere with you know some of whom were armed were like you know let us in we want to we want to see what's going on which is you know there there are there are institutions for that there are bipartisan poll watchers there is really nothing i mean our elections um for you know for for definitely for the last part of this century if not since their inception have been sort of a model 
for the rest of the world. Um, it's part of the reason that we feel so strongly about how we can, uh, you know, use democracy as something that we think we can kind of, I don't know what the processalize or whatever that word is, um, everywhere and say that this is the system that gets, uh, you know, the results where the people get to decide. They have the biggest say in their government and to, I mean, like you said, it's, it's um, what he's doing is shameful, but we expected it out of him. I think I, I also came, have to some degree have come to expect it out of some of the folks in the Republican Party, like a Lindsey Graham, like a Ted Cruz. But I guess I, what I wonder is how much are they responsible for what he's doing right now by not, I mean, you do have, I, I don't want to say, you know, folks like, folks like Mitt Romney or um, uh, Ben Sass um, from Nebraska have, and, and, and others, uh, I'm not going to limit it to just them, but enough uh, people are giving credence to Trump on the Republican side that it's like, you know, where does that party go from here if they're, if they're really going to, if you know if they're willing to go down with his ship on this issue, yeah, that, I, I I will get to that because I want to have that conversation. But this is what's so infuriating to me is like you said, he doesn't have to concede yet. He didn't have to concede on Tuesday night. He it's Friday night. He still doesn't have to concede. If there is election fraud out there, which there very well might be, studies have shown that that's you know not widespread, but it might be. There have been some videos out there that I've been like, all right, that's kind of suspicious. We should look into that legislate away like let, let's litigate no no one is more litigious than trump right fine let's go to the courts he can do all of these things and not attack our democratic system like it's at the core of our country of who we are and he's willing to burn it all down at his, at the altar of his ego and it's not again it's not surprising but and maybe the thing is that he just has done so many things that are not surprising over these last five years that we all kind of become numb to it but it's like for me this this crosses really like like what do they call it a, a, the red line like the when you start attacking democratic processes because you don't like the results because you're losing because you're losing it's in the, as you as you said where we're chanting stop the vote in one state and count the votes in another and you're saying that the process in arizona is legitimate because you're closing ground but the process in pennsylvania isn't because you're losing it just it doesn't make any sense and those scenes outside of arizona that you referenced that's that is dangerous. It really felt like, is this like we're in a third world country here where we have people with guns outside of a vote counting place because their candidate is losing? Like, and for him, to, then he gets up yesterday, he had another press conference and, and, and just doubles down on it, right? And and it's it really feels like we're watching some sort of like dictator here where, again, I've said this many times where I think, you know, Trump derangement syndrome is like a real thing and people have been hysterical for four years and when you're the boy who cried wolf for four years at some point no one's going to listen to you anymore but like this this to me is just a, a a totally different issue where he's so far out of line here that it, it's hard to say that like I, I I'm an American and I believe in democracy and then support someone who's so anti-democratic like that uh that yeah well yeah. I, I mean I won't get in I like of course leaning liberal means that i like get sucked into the part of the hysteria but i think some of the hypocrisy is worth pointing out that the same people who are like you know it's so disrespectful to our troops and to the flag when you kneel and protest during the national anthem are the same ones who are out there being like don't count these votes like 
what? <laughs> Literally does not get any more anti-democratic than saying right. don't count people's votes. Right. <laughs> right. And I mean, I guess maybe the last thing I'll say that's that's worth noting on this before I, I press you on sort of where does the where do yeah, the yeah. other Republicans go from here is um, the fact that um, you know they're sort of complaining about the fact that we don't have results on election night um, when in many of these areas. I'll speak to Philadelphia because that's the situ- one of the situations that I know. They were sort of saying, you know, we expect this huge influx in vote by mail. Um, we need to be able to start counting these votes as they come in, like they do in Florida um, and some other states that have used vote by mail for a long time. Um, but instead, because of the sort of the rules as they were written for non-pandemic scenarios where vote by mail is almost re- solely for absentee voting, um, they couldn't start opening those uh, mails and counting those ballots until the day of the election, um, which is, you know, a huge reason that we're in the situation that we're in today. It's not really uh, this massive amount of uh, mail that just got dumped in two days after the election. It's mail that has been sitting there, but we haven't been able to count those ballots largely because Republicans were obstructing measures to sort of uh, amend those rules or policies. Um, because of COVID, like the whole reason that we had this huge extension of vote by mail in the first place. Yeah. So I have a lot of thoughts actually on this vote by mail thing. And I can, I can honestly see it both ways. Like I see where if you're counting all these ballots as they come in, potentially some of these results start leaking out and it starts actually affecting the election in ways that really shouldn't, right? If, if, you know, for some reason you knew totals in Philadelphia, maybe that affects who shows up on election day because, you know, they think the cause is won or lost. And that bothers me. Um, But from like a kind of judicial expediency type thing, obviously this has been a complete failure. My big takeaway from this is I I feel like maybe this idea was out there of like, maybe we should push more for like mail-in ballots in general. And my takeaway is like, uh, absolutely not. Like voting in person, like if you want to say let's make voting early um, a bigger thing, which it has been here in Massachusetts for sure and probably in some other states in the last few years, great. But for the most part, people are still going and voting in person. I think there, I've voted by mail before in the past, and there are many reasons why people are, you know, apt to have, you know, absolutely legitimate reasons to do so. And certainly with times of COVID, it's, it's different. And there's lots of reasons not to go vote in person this um, election cycle. But there are a few states out there like Colorado, Utah, Oregon, Hawaii that mail their ballots out to all of registered voters every election, right? And whether you solicited one or not, they just mail all their ballots. That bothers me. And so, yeah, I guess I'm not a fan of mail-in voting or, or no excuse mail-in voting. And I, I don't know if that's like a, a hot take or anything, but I hope that we make more of a push to, to you know, make it easier to vote in person and encourage people to go and vote in person going forward because yeah this has been a disaster yes um certainly and and i i I hear the potential objection that you know it could it could cloud sort of what people do on election day but i i mean i i would i would still argue that a kind of we knew this was going to happen with the mail-in votes trump knew it was going to happen with the mail-in votes largely because of policies that Republicans push for with the mail-in votes. And so now all these things are happening that we expect to happen. And all of a sudden, it's like, no, this is a massive fraud. And and really, it's it just gets back to me for the people who should know better, who, you know, 
displayed sort of a different ethos before Trump sort of came to power in the Republican Party. They're not doing anything about it. And I, it's like, you know, you're the adults in the room and you have this petulant child and some people are chastising him, but sort of the real people who, who may have some opportunity to rein him in are literally doing nothing. And it is, to me, as despicable as anything that I'm seeing from Trump. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. I've had enough of reading things by neurotic, psychotic, big-headed politics. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about you know, where the Republican Party goes from here, presuming that, you know, President Trump loses this election, which looks likely, but is not definite yet. So I will say, and I made a note of this on our group chat, Mike Pence, we didn't really talk about the vice presidential debate, but I, I thought he was excellent in that too. He's an unbelievable politician. Like you might not like the guy, you might not like what he stands for, you might not like that he enables Trump, but so Trump gives his speech, his, his inflammatory, you know, We've won all of the, we've won this. Frankly, he says, you know, frankly, we won the election at 2.30. And then he turns to Mike Pence and he says, you get up and say a few words, Mike. <laughs> I'm like, goodness, it's not Mike Pence right now. How do you follow that? This guy just stood up there for five minutes and claimed victory in an election that he's losing and alleged widespread fraud up and down the country. And Mike Pence gets up and he says, you know, you know, we've set a record number of, of voters, out, Republican voters out there. We've had a great night for the Republican Party. And it's all thanks to the energy that you're bringing to make America great again, Mr. President. And like, no one can you know, get the base going, and get voters out like you're doing. And to the country out there, I want you to know that we're going to count every vote. We're going to make sure that every vote that is that is legal is counted. And we're going to make sure our elections have the integrity that we've you know, we've counted on for 240 years. Thank you. God bless and good night. I was, I was like blown away. I was like, wow. Like... Like, Brando said this in, in our group test. He was like, Pence got up there and just coddled Trump's ego and made it seem like he was agreeing with all his points while also, like, subtly, Not. like, refuting what he was saying. Uh, so let's talk about the Republican night because aside from, you know, Trump's disgraceful behavior, it was a very good night for Republicans. I was very pleased. So we had heard for weeks and for months of this blue wave that was coming. All the polls told us that Biden was going to win in a landslide. The, the Senate was going to flip to Democrats. The Democrats were going to increase their gains that they had made in 2018 in the House. And none of that happened. So uh, the Republicans have, at minimum, kept the Senate. There are two uh, runoff races in Georgia, which is going to be wild over this next month. Um, so determine whether it's going to be 50-50, which would actually tilt it to the Democrats, or be 52-48. Um, but in a map like this, in an, an election like this, for the, for the Republicans to only lose one seat in the Senate at this point... Is incredible. My favorite senator, Susan Collins from Maine, came out victorious. She's the type of moderate Republican that I think we need more of in Congress. I'm so happy that she's got another six years there. She continues to be the only Republican uh, in the New England delegation, which is incredible and, and really cool. Uh, the Republican delegation in the House gained at least five seats with potentially up to 10. Uh, they flipped eight Democratic seats, including six by women. Uh, House Republicans added 13 new women to the caucus, breaking the par uh, party's previous record. So a total of 23 Republican women were elected on Tuesday, uh, along with 83 Democratic women. So you can still see that Democrats have far more uh, you know, female representation. But uh, records for Republicans, 
Uh, and overall, it, it was it was a great night. Democrats didn't flip a single state house. And with redistricting, we don't have to get into that too much. But the Republicans flipped both New Hampshire, the state legislature, the House and the Senate in New Hampshire. Republicans control a vast majority of state legislatures. It was a huge night. And so this is where I think the Republicans, you know, have a storm browing here because... It yeah, was are they going to be Trump's Republican abs- Party without Trump? Exactly. So like this is where figure something out. if Trump had gotten smoked and if we had lost the Senate and if, you know, the the House continued to get more democratic, then that's a repudiation of Trump by the country and the Republicans can wipe their hands of him and say, "Hey, that was you know, it was a one-time thing, it was a mistake. We need to get back to our roots." A lot of the Republican gains, you have to credit to President Trump and like he campaigned like a madman over the final few weeks. He held rallies everywhere. He was doing five a day in five different states, and he turned his base out. And again, tip of the cap to the Republican ground game. Like I know it firsthand. The Republican ground game is is the best and by far the best in the country. Like turning out their votes, they are incredible. And like the enthusiasm that we got on the Republican side, I didn't necessarily know that that was coming. So I think this is where it, it becomes difficult because. Even if Trump loses, it's hard to get away from him. Like 70 million people said he deserves four more years. This that's not a repudiation of his of his presidency and the things that he believes in. And so it, it certainly leaves the door open for him to play a, a pivotal role in American politics in general and the Republican Party specifically, but it also allows, you know, his his followers and, and the MAGA people, and whether it's Don Jr. or it's someone like a Lindsey Graham, like these people are going to continue to be large figures in the party and it's it's not necessarily a party that's you know is going to be open to what i was hoping was kind of a new generation of leadership whether it's ben sass or or nikki haley or whomever it seems like we're much more likely to get you know mike pence and mike pompeo than we're getting you know nikki haley and a mitt romney so i don't necessarily know where the republicans go from here it was a good night for republicans in general but it's at what cost I I think I read this um, completely differently. Um, one, I think in many ways this was more of a Democratic failure than it was um, than it was a Republican victory. I, I I think I think certainly you you can read it in many of the ways that you read it. Uh, the way that I felt about it, like you mentioned, seventy million people voted for joe biden i think 74 million i mean sorry 70 million voted for trump 74 million voted for joe biden i don't know how many of those 74 million actually voted against trump and how many of those were former republicans obviously we think quite a few of them but what i would think is that many of them were doing exactly what you did which is all right i'm i don't you know i don't really want to see the things that joe biden is talking about i'm done with trump so i voted for joe jorgensen um, and I, you know, and then I voted Republicans the rest of the ticket. Um, I think, I think, I think I would be surprised if there were not a lot of people who did the exact same you know, thing. I, I totally agree, but <clears throat> 70 million is 70 million. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but I, I mean, I still, I still think based on what we saw in some of these other ballot measures and some of the places where he picked up, you know, M- Mississippi, probably what went like 70% for Trump, if, least, if not yeah. more easily. Right. So even in those places, I don't think that, I think that many of those people are still the, like, I vote Republican because I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not for socialism or whatever. I'm not going to, I'm yeah. really not going to get into that. <laughs> um, but, but, 
so the so I guess you know the failures of the Democratic Party um, in a couple. In a, I mean, I, we don't have all yeah, night. So we, we, we don't have all your, night. Yeah, so yeah. I'll, I'll pick the I'll, biggest ones. Please. I'll pick my spots. Yeah. Um, one, you talked about uh, Collins in Maine. The amount of time that I heard about her seat uh, versus Lindsey Graham's in South Carolina, like if I'm a Democrat. Maine is where I go to get my Senate seat. $108 million for Jamie Harrison to lose to Lindsey Graham. $108 million, and that guy got blown out. All right. First of all, obviously he got blown out. You're trying to get a black man elected as a Democrat in South Carolina. Don't Uh, tell me about Tim Tim Scott. Tim Scott is Republican. Don't tell me about (laughs) Tim Scott. Black man senator from South Carolina. Exactly. So you already have one black person representing the Senate from South Carolina. We're not talking about we're having like miracles here. They still want the Confederate flag on their state house, right? All right, so, you're really slandering no, the whole state. But no, I mean, yeah. It, the thing is, when Democrats want to go to these states that are Republican states, like it's, it things may be changing, demographics may be changing, but today it is a Republican state, and so you went with a candidate like Jamie Harrison, who I I like him yeah. a lot. Yep. I think he is a great candidate yep. for Connecticut. For New York, for South Carolina, even though he's from there and he's been a part of the Democratic establishment there, that is the minority party in that state. And you're not going to get you need like a Joe Manchin type of senator if you want to win in a state like South Carolina. And the egos within the Democratic Party to basically say that like the whole country is coming around to what we believe in Um really did us in 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 so many different ways and it's not and and i think um (laughs) what i don't want anybody to take away from this is that like i don't actually believe in a lot of these things because i definitely do but i know that you know you always have to meet people where they are um and you can't go into south carolina with and and lindsey graham you know I, i mean i think the guy's an absolute scumbag and a loser to me but to his credit he was like you know you know, hey New York, hey California, all that all that money, that hundred million dollars, worst money you ever spent, because it wasn't going to do jack here, and it's because we didn't run a campaign um, that was going to appeal to South Carolina at all, and <clears throat> I think this is something that we have to come to terms with: is we cannot r- run a, a Democratic senator by like the California Democrat litmus test if we want them to win in a state like South Carolina. Like we had kind of an opportunity in Montana. Um, obviously in Kentucky, it was a very similar situation. $88 million for Amy McGrath to get blown the, out the, by the, the money. The money is, is really irrelevant. It is the types of candidates that we put out there and the issues that we decided were going to be the most important issues that clearly were not, right? I still think the reason it was as close as it was in some of these like, you know, historically blue wall states um, is that the coronavirus and, and, you know, this is not an original take. This is certainly something that other people have said that the, you know, using the coronavirus as our um, main reason or sort of main failure to point at was was kind of a mistake. Where did the majority of coronavirus deaths occur? in sort of heavily populated democratic cities that were not in the places that we were needing to get votes and it's like just like in 2016 when we missed the mark in speaking to these people about the problems that were affecting them i think we did it again 
here and it was it's just it's so disappointing that we can't get out of our own way because <laughs> here's the thing in many ways we're on the right side of history of yeah. a lot of these issues how do you not like it that's i mean it's embarrassing yeah. like to, to yeah. not win against president trump he's got a i mean he's got arguably like one of the worst presidential candidates in history <laughs> right and everyone like the blue wave that everyone was expecting yeah. was seemed like it should be a legit expectation like it should have been a repudiation of him but again republican ground game turned out and the democratic party failed again and I, i'm not gonna like just poo poo this this money here they spent 108 on jamie harrison to lose 88 on Amy Roth to lose, 68 on Sarah Gideon to lose. There's 14 billion dollars in this election. Dems have spent almost 10 billion of it. They outspent Republicans two and a half to one and got smoked in this election. And um, Abigail Spanberger, I don't know if you heard this. She's a congresswoman from Virginia, but they the Dems had their uh, their kind of caucus call today, the first time, and, and she absolutely ripped them. She said, you know, if we if we say if we're classifying Tuesday as a success from a congressional standpoint, we will get fucking torn apart in 2022. That's the reality. And like for it's, I was even saying this watching like CNN, how everyone backpedals and says, oh, everyone said this could happen. No, you didn't. Like for weeks we were hearing about this blue wave and how this, the, you know, Democrats are going to be sweeping in. They're going to have all three chambers. They're going to make all this change that they're talking about. And it didn't happen. And to backpedal like, oh, it was a success. No, it was like a total failure for your party. And again, Yo, it's going to be even more infuriating. And I know you feel this when, yeah, if you think you're on the right side of history and you're on the right side of these ideas, the failure to convince 70 million people and the failure to convince people in, in Senate races with hundreds of millions of dollars is, is nothing can be categorized like as nothing but a failure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I uh, <laughs> it's hard, hard not to agree with with that characterization if you are um really looking at sort of what voters across the country voters in red states were were really saying yeah or purple states uh, or, or anything. purple states yeah, like certainly certainly it, and spanberg went on to say she's like we keep talking about defund the police and, and socialism yeah. and she's like maybe we don't necessarily you know kind of across our party believe in them but they've become issues that are associated with our party and the vast majority of Americans are against those issues. You're just not going to win on those issues. It, like you said, I don't have to tell you this, but there are issues where the Democrats can and should win. But instead, we're talking about you know socialism and, and anti-police rhetoric. Yeah. That just doesn't win in the majority of the country. Yeah. And I think part of it also speaks to this idea that if you subscribe to the party, you have to subscribe to everything that the party does, right? Like I mentioned Joe Manchin specifically because he's a coal-loving West Virginia Democrat, right? Like he votes with the Democrats on a lot of things, but he has been a problem for climate change legislation, which like as much as I hate that, I get it. Dude, you're from Represent your people. And That's all your they job. do is coal. Absolutely. Like, you're going to do that. Yeah. And, 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 that is, um, and that is something that we need to let our like in in general just across the board right and i i feel this way exactly with the republican party totally too, agree. right totally the agree. number of times that they sign on to something that trump's doing because you know his platform is the party's platform and if you're not with them you're against them like you can't actually like for some reason you can't be a fiscally conservative conservative republican and actually believe that like gay marriage is okay for some reason like that stuff drives me absolutely nuts as well but here like we just laid it bare like this is what happens when you try and go with a like a new york progressive agenda into a state like south carolina and and honestly 
like the saddest part about it is it's like it's Lindsey Graham like it's and not he's even a scumbag. he's a an loser. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, which is just like like forcing people in South Carolina to vote for Lindsey Graham is so sad but this is just kind of why I asked you know where does the Republican Party go from here because without Trump do people in his base follow Lindsey Graham if he's sort of saying the same things that Trump was saying I feel like Trump in addition to kind of what he was saying he had that I don't know yeah the showmanship the gravitas whatever it was that made people feel like it was okay to say these things um and I think yeah I mean broadly it's something that the Democrats missed in 2016 and they continue to miss it especially with older white voters that Trump verbalizes a lot of things that people have been told they're not really supposed to say anymore because it's racist and in many ways it is racist but I think again we talk about these issues in in black and white terms where we know you know in reality there's a spectrum to all of these issues but we've essentially forced people to to choose you know does this person kind of represent he's sort of talking about it like it's okay I think I think Trump had a, a special way of, of relating to people like that that I don't know that Lindsey Graham has or Ted Cruz has. You don't. No, they don't. They don't. They don't have it. They don't have it. So how do they continue? Or yeah, how do they sort of further his agenda, which he didn't really? It's kind of hard to say what his agenda was. Um, I, yeah, I don't. Know, I don't really know where I was going with that. But like, there's something particular about him that I think will make it difficult for the Trump part of the Republican Party to go on when there's no Trump. Absolutely. Well, one thing, I don't think, you know, in, until he, he dies, there won't be no Trump. Like, he's going to be looming over everything. That's just that's just who he is, right? And so, like, that, yeah, I acknowledge that it's going to be really difficult. And it, Trump has made it about himself since he started running. I'm the one that can fix this. It's, I mean, no better example than the fact the Republican Party didn't even put forth the platform this year in their convention. They just said, our platform is whatever Donald Trump's platform is, which as you said, was nothing. You're, so like, they, it's embarrassing, but like, there's like just a lack of ideas. So yeah, I, I think that there's a serious reckoning coming in the Republican Party. Uh, I think, you know, there's a, there's a serious reckoning coming in the Democratic Party, too. And Hopefully. this this left-center battle that you guys are going to have is, is going to be fascinating. Because when you have, you know, people running to the left of incumbents and winning these seats, and then they think that, like, all right, this is what we should do, to your point. Like, yeah, maybe that works in Massachusetts or in New York, but it doesn't work in South Carolina. It doesn't work in Kentucky, right? And, and, and that should be fine. Right, right. But so I, I think when you try to push this... You know, we should continue to recruit these like far left candidates, and these should be our, our this should be our platform. Like Spanberger winning a purple seat in Virginia is like, you know, articulating this that it doesn't work. So yeah, I, maybe maybe this is a longer episode that we have because I don't know that I have answers. I don't know that you have answers, but it in to some extent this happens every four years after a presidential election, it, it, except in something like 2018 where you're like, all right, Democrats know where they're going, but Republicans are having a reckoning. It's it's I think it's particularly interesting in 2020 that both parties are kind of happy in some ways and are also like kind of sneaky in crisis in other ways. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely love to dive in more cause it's, it's going to be fascinating over these next two years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, before I let you have the last word on what a disaster this was, it, I think I, it bears repeating though, still 
you know, four million more people chose Joe Biden over Donald Trump. Great, which great. Is not yeah. What did I say? For, what was my ideal scenario? Biden is the president. Republicans hold the Senate. Neither of those are guaranteed, but so far so good. So far so good. All right, I will say I am like a line from Gone sixty seconds. Like I'm a little tired. I'm a little wired. You know, I'm exhausted. It's been an exhausting week. Um, just watching. Not all a lot of, of sleep. Not a lot of sleep, and it's just it. It does like these other things. Just jobs, school, whatever. Just it doesn't feel as important when something so serious is is in the, is you know hanging in the balance over the course of the week. So. Yeah, it, this was uh, a hot take episode. I feel like we said a lot of stuff. We'll dive into this more over these next few weeks, like really kind of dig into yeah. some of the more substantive issues. But I think, touche to your point, uh, yeah, let's, that was just like an unloading of, of thoughts we that we needed to had. get some of those stuff Yeah, that's there. fair. All, All right, right, man. Until, until next time. Scattered in the wind They died again a hundred years ago They're still dying
keep out.